is from Luke 11, verses 5 to 13, which can be found on page 735 of your pew Bibles. Luke 11. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God. Morning, everyone. Good to have you here with us this morning. Um, last Wednesday, Pastor Chuck and Irene happened to stop by the office to drop off some things, so I got to see them before they headed off to Florida. Um, if you're interested to know, they left on Thursday uh, with Chuck uh, driving a moving van down, trying to make minimal stops just to get down there. Uh, Nate and Ellen also drove down with him. Uh, Irene uh, went with their son, Ben, and they're having a more leisurely time to get down there. So they're probably not in Florida yet. I think they're going to make several stops. But I think Pastor Chuck is uh, down in Florida already. and Maybe he's out on a fishing dock somewhere this morning trying out the new rod you gave him last week. Um, but they're both very appreciative of uh, the lunch that you had last Sunday. And uh, they wanted me to extend their uh, their thanks and yeah, it's just their appreciation for all your uh, warm wishes and, and uh, just the opportunity that they had to spend with you uh, over the lunch last Sunday. And so as um, Pastor Chuck concluded his series um, last week, uh, we're going to start a new series, as you see in your bulletin, on the parables of Jesus. Uh, this is going to last through the summer, and, and I think this is a good series for us to go through for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one is that if you've been attending our church for the last two years, you know that Pastor Chuck basically covered the entire Bible over the past two years. And doing so, he had to go through large swaths of scripture. You know, sometimes you would cover, you know, a whole book of the Bible in a week. Uh, so I thought it would be good to take some time to just look at more specific portions of scripture and just dig deeper into them. And moreover, I thought it would be good since we took such a broad, you know, broad brush of, of looking at scripture, it would be good to just kind of go back to the basics and just kind of look at, you know, what Jesus emphasized as he taught his followers. And before we're going to begin into our parable for this morning, I thought it would be good to just start off with an intro as to, you know, what are parables? You know, why did Jesus use them? And so as you can see in your bulletin, you know, I, I kind of want to answer the what, where, and why questions. So first, you know, what, what is a parable? 
If a friend, you know, an unbelieving friend asked you, you know, I see in, in the Bible there's Jesus spoke in parables. What, what's a parable? What answer would you give them? I looked over many different definitions given by many different authors, and, and I like this succinct one that was given by John MacArthur, which I somewhat modified, and it is this. A parable is a story or a long simile with a distinct spiritual lesson. It's a story or long simile with a distinct spiritual lesson. The word parable is described or is derived, excuse me, from two Greek words, which means to place alongside. So it suggests a comparison of two things. In Jesus' case, it refers to an analogy, an analogy being made between something commonly understood and a profound spiritual truth that he would want to make to his listeners. To further explain, a couple of characteristics of the parables are this. Parables are illustrations from everyday life. The illustrations from everything, everyday life. Things that people could easily relate back to, or relate to back then. You know, there's no mythical elements, there's no fictional elements. Jesus will never tell a story about a character like a Jedi or an orc or a creeper or something like that. They're all real places. He's never gonna take, you know, you talk about a parable that takes place in a place like Summoner's Rift or the Hollowing Abyss or things like this. They were all stories his listeners could relate to and understand. And they were all real-life events, though some would be understood as exaggerations of everyday occurrences. A second characteristic is that the lessons of the parable are God-centered, central, and often the only point. They're God-centered, central, and often the only point. They're given to teach a lesson in a specific context in which Jesus was teaching. So more should not be read into them. There's an example of St. Augustine who studied the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of you, I would think, are familiar with that parable. And in studying the parable of the Good Samaritan, he concluded things like, well, the victim in the story represented Adam, and the robbers must have been the devils and, the, and his angels, and the Good Samaritan must have represented Jesus, and the end represents the church. You know, and him binding up the wounds of the Samaritan was him binding up sin and things like that. But, you know, this is not how the parables are to be read. There's no allegory in the parables. The lessons are very simple, very focused. They often just make one point, and maybe two, but, but more minor. Those would be more minor ones. But there's always a central spiritual lesson. Okay, so that's what a parable is. And where are the parables found? For those more familiar with the Bible, knowing that the parables were told by Jesus, you'd say, well, of course, the parables are in the Gospels. They're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But did you know that there are actually no parables in John? And Mark only contains six parables, excuse me, which is, which only one is unique. So the majority of Jesus' 40 or so parables that he told are found in the book of Matthew and Luke. None in John, one unique in Mark. And now moving on, if, if the same unbelieving friend is in the first question, followed up your response by asking, well, why did Jesus give us parables? Why did Jesus talk in parables? My guess is the majority of you would kind of pause for a moment, you know, maybe think for a little bit, and you would come up with a response sounding something like this. You know, you'd say something like, 
Well, Jesus told parables to better illustrate his teachings and make them more memorable for his listeners. He did it so that they would, you know, he could better explain things and people could follow them. They would make it more memorable. You know, and that's true. You know, good illustrations do stick with people. I mean, I've had many conversations with, with you who, you know, without prompting, some of you will mention things like, oh yeah, remember when Pastor Chuck showed that Carrie Underwood video for his sermon? You know, remember when Pastor Chuck walked in with his doctoral robes um, before he gave the message? Remember when Pastor Chuck talk, talked about that story about his friend Ray? You know, it's funny, you know, you guys remember these things, but when I often follow up asking, uh, do you remember the point of the sermon, or do you remember the text that he preached on? You go, no. <laughs> but, but the point to Jesus' parables is, is the same, though, and that is, you know, these illustrations are memorable, and they help people understand spiritual lessons. So your answer, if you said something like that, would be correct, but actually you'd only be partially correct. And here's why. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and we're going to read verses 10 to 15. Matthew 13, 10 to 15. Let me read it for you. Give you a sec to turn to it. Starting with verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become callous. They hardly hear with their eyes and they have closed their eye, or they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Hmm. So can you see from this passage that there's another reason why Jesus spoke in parables? And it's the exact opposite of the reason you might have just given. Instead of using parables to help illustrate truth for listeners, parables were also used to hide truth from those who reject Christ. In one sense, you could say it was judgment for those who would not hear, but in another sense, it was also an act of God's mercy. Because you see in verse 15 of Matthew 13, Jesus describes these people as ones whose hearts has been hardened, one whose ears have been stopped up, one whose eyes have been closed. By their own choice, they have rejected Christ and would not seek out Jesus' meaning in the parables. So the truth contained in them would be hidden from them. The more these people heard Christ and his truth, the more they would be accountable to God on Judgment Day. But Jesus, by concealing spiritual lessons from them in the form of parables, is preventing them from piling up more and more guilt on their heads. Since they willfully choose not to seek out the truth in parables, they will not understand them. And as such, they won't be as accountable for what they haven't 
understood. So though it is an act of judgment from God to conceal truth from them, it's also an act of mercy from God to prevent them from being responsible for truth that they understood. So there's a twofold reason for the parables. One is to reveal truth, and the second is to hide truth. So now having this background on the parables, let's move on to our parable for today. You know, when it comes to prayer, a majority of believers would affirm that this is something that's vitally important for the Christian life. But unfortunately, few do it consistently. In a 2014 article that I read regarding a study of over 1,500 evangelical Christians, 87% agreed with the statement that every Christian needs to spend time alone with God on a daily basis, and without it, their faith will suffer. And though 90% of these respondents said that they read the Bible regularly, although maybe not every day, only 31% of these people said that they set aside a substantial period of time each day to pray. And I know even within our EM congregation, you know, we just had an EM leaders meeting a few weeks ago, and one of the initiatives that was shared is that we, who are on the English Ministry Leadership Core team, desire that we do more to show that prayer is a high priority. Because currently it seems we may not be doing enough. And when you examine your own personal prayer life, would, would you say your personal habits or practices dictate much of what the study found? That sure, we would say that it, it's very important. It would be vitally important. But yet we can't seem to find enough time to spend doing so. As we look at Jesus' parable, in Luke 11, you may have already noticed the story directly follows his giving of the Lord's Prayer. So through verses 1 to 4, Jesus teaches his followers how to pray, but then following in our parable, Jesus teaches his followers how to approach God in prayer. And so he tells the story of a person who goes to his friend's home at midnight to knock on the door to ask for some bread because a visitor just arrived at his home and he needs to give him some food to eat. The friend, though irritated, gives the man the bread that he needs to provide for his guest. And to better understand the parable, there's some key things that we need to understand, which helps us understand you know, some of the context and some of the points that this parable is wanting to make. First is the time of day, the time of day. You know, even nowadays, you might consider ringing someone's doorbell at midnight pretty rude. But it was even worse back then. You know, remember, it was not the practice back then to go to bed late. You know, there was no late night TV to watch. There's no internet to surf. You know, when it got dark, you may have stayed up a little bit, you know, with the burning of a candle. But then you went to sleep because people would usually get up at 6 a.m. to start the work day. Hardly anyone would be awake at midnight. No one did anything late at night, except maybe for, as we saw in the story, this traveler who might plan a long journey to extend through late at night so he could escape most of the heat of the day. But other than someone like him, no one would be awake at night. As the parable also implied, 
the houses were very small, maybe one room, two rooms at the most. So it would be quite an interruption to knock so late. You wouldn't just be bothering one person, you would be waking up the whole house. I remember um, Pastor Sandy was sharing with me that one time on the Hopi uh, mission trip, maybe it was last year, and you, you guys would remember, some adults had to go out and get some things, and they told the leaders who stayed back, oh, make sure you keep the church door open so that we can get back in. But then the people forgot and they locked the church door. So when they got back late at night, they couldn't get in the building. And so they figured out what they could do was knock on the window of one of the rooms, and they knew that this one person was like sleeping right by the window and that they could just wake him and he would open the door. And so that's what they did. They knocked on the window and woke that person up and he opened the door and let them in. But they couldn't have done that back in Jesus' time because, once again, the, the houses were, were small and the doors, it wasn't like, you know, just these flimsy doors we had back then. They were like big doors with chains and big locks. So, you know, just, just to knock on the door and to have the person open this door, you, you'd wake the whole house up. And none of them, once again, would be too happy. So understand that the time of day, you know, would cause quite an intrusion back then for the family, you know, if someone knocked on the door. A second key factor was the emphasis on hospitality. Back then in the ancient world, hospitality was a priority. It was a person's social duty to show hospitality to, to a friend. Inns were not numerous and were often considered like kind of seedy places. So travelers depended on other people's hospitality. Any host would know he had a responsibility to properly care for his guests, no matter what time he or she arrived. And then a third factor was the need. The need. Because there weren't things like refrigerators back then, commonly you just made what you needed for the day. You bake bread for the day, when you run out of bread, there's no more. And it's not like there were convenience stores around so, you know, the friend could just say, you know, just go to the 7-Eleven and grab a bag of Doritos or something. That was not, you know, feasible. So this person, aware of his obligation to provide hospitality for this traveler, knowing he has nothing in his house and has to look elsewhere, and fully aware that in looking elsewhere, he's going to wake up his friend late at night and all his family members, and they're not going to be too happy about it, goes ahead and disturbs his friend to meet his need. And the important verse to understand the lesson Jesus is teaching here, the key verse, is verse 8. He says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet, my version said, because of this man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Did you get that? It's not because of friendship he's going to give this person the bread, even though he is this person's friend. But it's out of the man's boldness. My version, once again, had this term boldness. I'm not sure uh, what version Jess read, but her version said shameless audacity. And that's actually a better interpretation of the Greek word because, you know, literally it would be like shamelessness, insensitivity, rudeness. It's because this man was so shameless in going to his friend's house 
so insensitive, so rude in his manner that his friend's going to give him what he needs. And so the point of the parable is this. Jesus instructs his listeners to pray shamelessly because God is a good God. Regarding the first half of this statement, you know, think about some attitudes that keep you from praying to God. Outside of the fact that you think, oh, maybe, maybe you're too busy and you don't have time to pray, maybe you also have attitudes like, you know, oh, well, I don't want to bother God with personal needs or bother God with small stuff. Or maybe you feel like God's so busy running the universe, you wouldn't want to pester him with just, you know, your personal needs. Maybe you feel like, you know, approaching God would be the same as like going to your boss. You know, what do you do when you go to your boss or your teacher? You're like, well, sorry to bother you. You know, I hope I'm not interrupting something. And maybe because of attitudes like this, you don't want to go to God in prayer. But Jesus is instructing his listeners, you know, don't think like that. Approach me. Come to me. Any time, any day, be shameless in your approach to prayer. You remember how in the Old Testament, in Exodus, when Moses was about to receive the law from God, the Israelites saw God reveal himself in fire and smoke, you know, on the mountain. And when they saw God, you know, appearing on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke, they trembled with fear. You know, and God even told them, where he told them through Moses, you know, don't let the people approach the mountain. Don't let them step foot on the mountain or they're going to die. And these people hearing this, these people trembling in fear, told Moses in Exodus 20, you know, you speak to us. Don't have God speak to us or we're going to die. And contrast that with what the author of Hebrews tells his readers in Hebrews 4.6. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The author of Hebrews would say, you don't need to be like the people back in Exodus who trembled with fear, who didn't want to even hear God. They just wanted to hear God through Moses because they were afraid of him. He's saying, no, approach God with confidence so that you will receive what you need, so that you will receive mercy and grace when you need it. And why can we have this confidence? Because God is a good God. The argument made in this parable is called the lesser to greater argument. What Jesus is saying is, if the friend, though irritated, though thinking you're rude, will give you the bread that you need, how much more will God? And unlike the parable, God is not like the friend and the friend who needs to be woken up because God doesn't sleep, it says in the scripture. He doesn't slumber. He is not like the friend who only does so because his friends, because of his friend's shamelessness. But it's because he loves you perfectly and because he invites you to come and commune with him. Jesus reinforces this point with what he says in the following verses in you know, 11 to 13. 
You know, even perfect sinful fathers will grant their son's request by giving them a fish and not a snake and an egg and not a scorpion. How much more will God give to his children? So he instructs you in this passage, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. I mean, let that just sink in. When you know you can approach God shamelessly and boldly to ask for what you need, and Jesus is actually telling you to do so, and you know he will answer your requests, I mean, what more motivation do you need to go to pray? You don't have to fear what the Israelites did back in Moses' time. Because not only is God a good God, but through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, Jesus has removed, as scripture tells us, the dividing wall of sin, which separated us from God, our Father. So we are now able to enter his presence. We are now able to approach the throne with confidence. Jesus instructs his listeners, you know, not just do it once, but continually go enter the presence of God and commune with him. Be bold, be shameless. Imperfect, sinful people like us can bring our cares and concerns to God, to our holy God, because he cares and he will respond. But maybe some of you think like, well, what happens when it seems God doesn't answer our prayers? What happens when it seems he's delaying in answering our requests? You know, maybe you're out of work and you've been praying for a job for a long time, but it's just not happening. I've gone through that. Maybe you've been praying for someone's salvation for a long time. And this person isn't coming to Christ and seems, quite frankly, very far off from coming to Christ. Maybe you've been praying for a spouse and that isn't happening. And God just seems silent. I mean, does this nullify what the passage just teaches? I don't think so. Because notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 13. He doesn't say, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give what you ask of him? It says, how much more will the father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So what does he mean by this? I think in his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom, God desires to give what's best to his children. And oftentimes we understand that what he knows and recognizes is best for us doesn't often mesh with what we think is best for ourselves. So instead of giving us what we ask for, he gives us the Holy Spirit who is the giver of what we need. If we're praying and we need wisdom, scripture refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of wisdom. If we need knowledge, other verses tell us he is the Spirit who gives knowledge. If we need guidance, other verses say he is the Spirit who guides us. If we need joy or per- perseverance, he's also these things. So when you think about it, it's amazing that 
Though God does not grant our specific requests, he grants us the giver who gives us exactly what we need. And that's the Holy Spirit. So we can trust that even though God seems to delay in answering our prayers, God is infinitely wise. And he gives us the Spirit who is infinitely wise and the giver of exactly what we need, who gives us what we need at the time that we need it. He will respond to our prayers in the way that he knows best and in the time that he knows best. We can trust that God gives us the Holy Spirit, who is the giver of all these things. So I pray that you would be encouraged to devote more time to prayer, because Jesus instructs us in this parable to go before God boldly, shamelessly, because God is a good, good God. We can be like Nehemiah. Have you ever looked at uh, the prayer get Nehemiah prayed to God in Nehemiah 1. He starts off his prayer basically saying, God, give me your ear. Be attentive to the pray, prayer I'm praying to you. Listen to me. You know, that's shameless praying. You know, when he would just go to God and be direct and be rude. We can have the confidence to go to God like that. And I would ask all of you, as we go through this, you know, we're in this transitional time now, looking for our next EM pastor, I will shamelessly ask you to pray for our church. You know, studies have shown that even for believers who pray often, their prayers usually just consist of prayer for personal needs or prayers for their family more than anything else. So I would ask you, when you pray, you know, pray for our congregation. Pray for our church leaders. Pray for the search committee. Pray for me. We need to bring all these things to God. And we can be confident that when we approach the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews 4, he will give us the mercy and grace that we need in our time of need. So pray often. Pray shamelessly. Pray for our church. Pray for things that concern you and know that God is a good God and will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this privilege that we have to be able to come to you in prayer. As we saw in the Old Testament, how the Israelites just trembled in fear before you and wouldn't even approach you and you wouldn't even let them approach you. But now, because of Jesus, we can be bold and we can approach you. Lord, may we not be hesitant to pray, thinking that we're too busy, or we're too imperfect, or we're too sinful for you to hear our prayers. May we know and be encouraged how to pray to you shamelessly. Because that is what Jesus instructs us through this parable. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.